Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. My name is Robert. The program is called Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest today, Mr. Russ Petrus, the Associate Director of Future Church. Welcome to Seldom Said, Russ. Hi, thank you, Robert. I'm, I'm very happy to be here, and thanks for having me. I can assure you it's our pleasure. Now, I must begin with the obvious question, what indeed is Future Church? How has it been organized, and how did you become part of it? Sure. Uh, Future Church is a 28-year-old reform organization and movement within the Catholic Church um, that was founded uh, here locally uh, in Cleveland uh, by, by Catholics, a group of lay Catholics and priests and sisters who were really interested in uh, putting forward a, a, a progressive uh, vision for a future of the Church that was actually rooted in the reforms that were first um, suggested by the Second Vatican Council back in the 1960s. And uh, what was troubling to those early founding members of Future Church was <clears throat> what they saw happening was uh, an, uh, a coming uh, shortage of clergy. Um, and so uh, they saw that that was happening, and no one no one was really talking about it. And so Future Church was really founded on the mission of talking about the coming clergy shortage. And of course, uh, we're here now. We're in the midst of that clergy shortage right now. Uh, so in the early days, that's what they did. They went across the country talking about the clergy shortage and different uh, reforms that, that the Church could, could undertake that would help to address that and help to um, make sure that despite a clergy shortage, that Catholics would still have the same access to celebrating the sacraments, uh, celebrating communion or Eucharist, um, and uh, to, to worship and, and be together in community. Uh, so those were the early days of Future Church. Since, since then, uh, we've expanded our work and we have uh, five major initiatives that all of our work falls under. Uh, still, that, that, that foundational one, the future of priestly ministry. Um, uh, we've also added women in church leadership, which is really about recognizing that there are opportunities for lay people, and especially women, to exercise decision-making roles and to have some authority in the church outside necessarily of ordination, that, that we don't always have to have these positions of, uh, of authority and decision-making filled by uh, clerics, those who have been ordained. So we do a lot of uh, advocating and educating about that. And, of course, uh, talking to folks about the, the earliest tradition uh, in the church, you know, before you could probably even call it a church, really it was more of a movement, uh, where uh, certainly Jesus, and, and I would argue St. Paul, had inclusive practices of recognizing both male and female leadership. We have our Save Our Parish Community um, initiative, which is really about uh, supporting parishioners who have been notified that their parish is going to be closed or merged, giving them the resources that they need uh, to, to fight those closures, especially if they're a vibrant parish. Um, and so we're giving them the tools uh, that they'll need uh, in terms of canon law, 
in terms of working with the press and working with their local uh, bishops uh, to keep their parishes open. And then we also have a new initiative that sort of emerged out of that, which we're calling Emerging Models of uh, Community Life and Leadership, which is really about looking at all the ways throughout the world that Catholics are sort of reinventing uh, what it means to be church, different ways of living in community together, different ways of exercising leadership. And so what we're doing through that initiative is promoting uh, those, those new models, really lifting them up and, and giving people uh, an inside look onto how those models came about and uh, their pros and sometimes their cons and just food for thought for people. And finally, we have our Justice in the Church initiative, which is really all about uh, making sure that the church workers, Catholics uh, of all walks of life are, are treated justly and with uh, their basic human dignity intact. Um, so underneath all those, we do a lot of education, direct advocacy, working with bishops, um, uh, putting on teleconferences, podcasts. Uh, we make resources available uh, for folks who want to learn more about any of the topics. And so that's what we do. Uh, we're a small but mighty team here in the office, uh, but we definitely have, uh, I, I would say, a network of probably several thousand uh, active uh, folks who um, are engaged in our work and, and um, sort of employ uh, our, our resources and our strategies and um, our prayer services and things like that in their local communities, uh, mostly throughout the United States, but also uh, we are growing internationally, too. You mentioned the word progressive, and to many, either doctrinaire or liberal, that word is virtually anathema. When you defined progressive in your own mind context, what issue and what ideology are you speaking to, Russ? Sure. Um, you know, as Catholics, we believe that the, the Church is um, a living, breathing entity, that it is something that has a life of its own. It's not just an institution. It's not just a, um, a body, but, but, but it is something that has an inherent life of its own, and, and that it's founded by Jesus Christ and certainly uh, animated by the Holy Spirit. And so... For us, the notion of progressive would be that we're, we're continuing along that lifespan, that we're a pilgrim church moving forward, that we're going in a, in a direction, and that we're not stagnant, that we're not held back necessarily by, um, this is the way we've always done it, and so it's the way we're always going to do it, but, but that we do need to, to constantly be looking at the life of the church and see where are signs of new life, where are new opportunities, where are new challenges, and how can we best respond to those? Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily progressive in the sense of uh, progressive versus conservative, or, you know, those sort of um, ideological divides, but really about the good of the Church and uh, making it a lively, vibrant um, community. If we were to take that a step further and focus on your own personal background, can you describe to the listening audience who you are, where you've been, and what brought you to this place in time? Sure. Um, I am a cradle Catholic, so my uh, my mom and dad were 
my, my dad was a cradle Catholic himself, and my mom was an RCIA Catholic. And for your listeners who don't know, RCIA stands for the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults. And it's the process by which uh, folks who, uh, in their adult lives, uh, who, who weren't Catholic, become Catholic. So my mom went through that process. And uh, I like to say that I got the best of both worlds. I got uh, a Catholic dad who understood the importance of tradition and, um, and trust and faith, and, and uh, a mom who understood the importance of questioning and discerning and thinking and uh, all that. So I was really blessed to have that kind of a background. And uh, they were very involved in our parish uh, here in the Cleveland area growing up, and so sort of by default, my brothers and I were also uh, very involved, oftentimes just dragged along, um, you know, when we were little kids. In fact, some of my earliest memories are memories of things that we went to with my parents at the church, and we'd be playing with other kids in the community. Um, so for me, uh, I, of, of my two brothers, I guess I, it was, uh, of the three of us, I was the one who uh, that took. <laughs> it really took. I was really involved in... Uh, the youth ministry program at my parish growing up. I was an altar server. I was in the choir uh, and did all that sort of stuff. And then when I was in high school, I was also really involved in our high school's campus ministry program. All the same stuff, uh, prayer groups, um, the, the, the liturgical musicians, and service projects and things like that. And so by the time I was looking at colleges, I knew that that was a really important component of what I was looking for in a college. And I chose a college in New York State, Canisius College, a, a Jesuit school in Buffalo, um, primarily because they had a really active and involved um, campus ministry program that was really vital to the life of the, the entire college and the student life experience. And I just immersed myself in that 110% and was really involved there. Uh, helping out with retreats. I, I even uh, helped to write some retreats, lead some retreats, uh, service programs, um, and, and other activities there. And uh, by the time I was finished with college, I knew that ministry was what I wanted to do. I knew that I didn't want to be a priest, um, but uh, I, I, I knew that ministry, uh, lay ministry, was was what I wanted to do. And so from college, I went on to the Western Jesuit School of Theology in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is now part of Boston College's School of Theology and Ministry, and I got my Master of Divinity there, which is uh, sort of the, 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 the professional degree for, uh, for ministers. It's a degree that priests get, it's a degree that uh, lay ministers can get, and um, worked in parish life in Boston for a while, doing youth ministry, young adult ministry, RCIA, that sort of thing. And then uh, eventually did move back here to the Cleveland area and got a job at a really great, vibrant, smart uh, parish uh, in one of the suburbs of Cleveland. And it was there that um, I really found myself being challenged because the, the folks who would go through the RCIA process, that same process that my mom went through, were asking me really great questions about um, the church and LGBTQ people, about the church and women, and why women couldn't be priests, and why the church was against gay marriage and all that kind of stuff. Like really good, um, 
good questions, just honest questions. And I found myself constantly answering them, you know, well, this is what the Church teaches, but there are those who say. And it dawned on me that I am one of those who say, you know, one of those, quote, those who say. And, uh, you know, in college, I was one of those who said, and I said it out loud, and it was it was never a problem, and my involvement in campus ministry was um, uh, was founded on a lot of, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, making sure that we were ministering to the LGBTQ community on campus and that we were uh, involving uh, women in, uh, in, in roles on campus. And so I sort of re-found that passion through their questions, and I, I thought, you know, I, I, I can't do this while I'm currently engaged in parish ministry, there's a lot of reasons for that, um, one of which was uh, we had a particularly, um, I would say, a difficult bishop uh, to work with at that time here in Cleveland. And so I knew for the good of the parish, if I wanted to once again be one of those who say I needed to continue my ministry elsewhere. And as luck would have it, Future Church was looking for a program director. And so I interviewed and went through that whole process and um, was really excited about their mission and what they were doing and that they were working with Catholics, they were working within the institution. And so um, I uh, accepted the job when it was offered to me and um, really haven't looked back since and was recently promoted to the role of associate director. So really excited to see where uh, this goes. Like I say, Future Church has been around for 28 years now, and really looking forward to the next uh, 28 or more. So, God willing. You mentioned an academic career in preparation for the position you have presently. One is reminded uh, of that uh, famous quote by Thomas Aquinas, where he infers that now he takes a leap of faith. He simply accepts a measure of truth, perhaps nebulous in his own mind, but he embraces it. Where would you personally or academically as a director place that fulcrum, that balance between faith and academic logic? Yeah, I think it's a constant struggle between the two. Um, you know, I, I don't know that they're necessarily opposed to each other. I think there's a lot of times when when faith and logic can go hand in hand. Um but there are some times where I think, you know, we find ourselves having to retreat into uh, mystery. You know, I, you know, for instance, you know, one of the ones that trips people up all the time is the Trinity, right? How can there be three persons and one God, and yet it's still one God, and there's three persons? And even like St. Patrick, you know, St. Patrick uses the, uh, or legend has it that St. Patrick uses the, the shamrock to show the you know, the three different leaves, but it's still one. It's still one. Uh, you know, shamrock. Well, if you look at that closely enough, you can find that it's a heresy. That you know, so, 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 you know the the legend of uh, of Saint Patrick is a heresy. But um, you know, and, and so there's no way you get into the Trinity, for instance, um, without having to at some point accept it as a mystery and try to find the truth the uppercase truth in it, you know, and so for me, for instance, I find that, you know, just as God is somehow communal and united despite God's uh, apparent inherent diversity, so too are we as a people called to be 
united uh, despite our, our inherent diversity and that we are supposed to be living in community and not isolation. So, you know, it's, it's, that, kind of, uh, it's that kind of a back and forth between faith and logic um, that, that I love. It's sort of the, the, my bread and butter in my own spiritual life, my own life of faith and prayer. We're within one and a half minutes of our first break. Uh, it's usually indicative of a good program, and it goes rather quickly. I'm curious, uh, Russ, whether you then feel, given what you just said, that doubt is an integral part of anyone's belief. Uh, oh, for sure, 100%. Uh, I think I think if, if you've never doubted your, your faith or uh, anything like that, you, you probably haven't come to a mature... Uh, points in your faith life yet, and that's not that's not necessarily a, a bad thing, um, you know. And, and I don't necessarily blame people for that, but um, sometimes people haven't been given the tools that they need to to really grapple with those big questions and know that it's okay to doubt and know that it's okay to have those struggles um, and understand that when you emerge on the other side of them, you uh, emerge as a, as a better person, as a more faithful person with a stronger faith. Um, yeah, I would definitely say it's an integral part of, of that progress, right, of growing uh, and living and, and moving towards something, being on a journey. Russ, hold those thoughts. We're about to have our first break. Our guest today is Russ Petrus, the Associate Director of Future Church, speaking to us out of his offices in Cleveland. We'll be coming back in a few moments with questions and we'll pursue the issues that are affecting the church today. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. My name is Robert. The program is called Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. We're dealing with uh, an interview with Mr. Russ Petrus, the Associate Director of Future Church, Russ, coming back to some of the issues that we began to examine in the last segment, I would be curious, let's perhaps posit a personal liturgical question. Is there a Damascus moment in your own life where in point of fact you are here and then following an experience you are there, that epiphanal second that some speak of? Sure. Uh, I think I, I talked a little bit about that uh, uh, just uh, when I was talking about my own life journey is, you know, other people's questions. Um, I love it when people challenge me and push back uh, on things uh, to me, and and it gives me an opportunity to really think and ponder and, and delve deeply into who am I, what do I believe, what does my church believe, what does my faith tell me, what does my own relationship with God tell me. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, for me, uh, on a very personal level, I, I am a, a, a gay man, and I'm, and I'm married. And so when I was going through college, for instance, um, that was something that was openly celebrated, and, you know, uh, it, it was a good thing, and there was never any problem in college being both gay and Catholic, and being gay and working with campus ministry and leading retreats and doing music and all that kind of stuff. But in my own life of ministry after college, 
I found myself going deeper and deeper back into the closet because I knew that in order to um, to be able to continue to, to minister in parish life, which was something that I had spent a lot of time and honestly money <laughs> preparing for, um, that that was something uh, that I needed to do. And so I found uh, ways of justifying that and ways of being okay with that. Um, but when people started to question, not me, I guess, but I guess the Church's teaching, uh, when I was leading that RCIA process I was talking about, um, it was like, you know what, I, I really am, I, first of all, I'm one of, those, I, I'm one of those people that you're talking about, and I am one of those who say. I, you know, I understand where the Church is coming from, I understand um, that they have, you know, a reason and a rationality for it, but I start from the same point and come to a very different conclusion. And, um, you know, for me, that was an, um, was a moment to say, you know, I can't go any more deeply into the, into the closet. I, for my own good and for the good of my LGBTQ Catholic sisters and brothers, um, I've got to make a change here. I've got to be vocally one of those who say, and that's, you know, where the pivot, I think, really from uh, the, my ministry that was very parish-based uh, into reform um, happened. We live in a relativist society, and yet we espouse on occasion individually absolutist truths. Continuing on the statement you've just made, how do you react to those in the Church as well as without it? who argue that there are certain things that are doctrinaire and fundamentally dogmatic, and to say anything different and to posit anything different is sacrilege and heresy. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate because uh, in the early life of the Church, there was a lot of openness to questions and considerations and figuring things out. You know, we didn't have rules and dogmas and doctrines and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, they were just figuring it out and, and trying to put language and words to things that they believed, things that they were experiencing. And, uh, you know, there's the, there's the saying, lex orandi, lex credendi. It's, you know, the, the law of praying, you know, leads to the, to the law of believing, or the rule of praying leads to the rule of believing, meaning that, you know, in the early church, their doctrines and dogmas grew out of practice. It wasn't the other way around. Uh, you know, so, so, so they were finding themselves in the midst of doing something and then having to figure out why they were doing what they were doing. And I think we're very much in the same place in our church today. You know, we're constantly learning and growing and finding out more things about humanity, things about Scripture, when it was written, why it was written, who it was written by, uh, for whom it was written. And, you know, I, I think if we get locked in to saying, like, this is a truth and it can never be changed, and it can, you know, there, there are certain things, like Jesus was, was divine, you know, certain things that, yeah, we can say, you know, are, are baseline, but when we get into the more particulars, I think we're constantly learning. And I think our practice um, is eventually going to develop our doctrines and our dogmas. Uh, and it has to. It's, it's, the way, it's the way it's always been done in the Church. For 2,000 years, you look at anything, and that's how it's happened. So I would say that would be my response to them. You know, like, I, 
I, I understand where you're coming from, um, and I understand that that's an easy way to go. I understand that it's easy to fall back on that, but if we're really engaged in a process of discernment and growing and becoming holier, healthier people as individuals and as a community, we really have to look at the realities that we face today and face now and how are we living through them uh, and how does that inform what we ought to believe about them. You'd mentioned earlier about a difficulty with a clerical hierarchical figure, a bishop, and this phrase now of relativism and changing with the times, perhaps we can correlate both together. And what would be your opinion in regard to the Church's fundamental hierarchical structure? Do you feel it has grown superfluous in the 21st century, as some have hinted at? Yeah, I think if you, you know, you read uh, the headlines of any newspaper that's covering, you know, the, cl- the current clergy sex abuse crisis, um, and even, you know, the way the Church has responded um, to different things uh, like um, uh, immigration here in the United States, um, I-, I think it's hard to look at those headlines and those articles and, and-, and say that... Um, the hierarchy is doing itself any favors. Um, I think the hierarchy as it exists today really is failing Catholics, and I think even to the the larger world. You know, and I've I've seen I've seen the Catholic Church be a tremendous force for good in the world, and yet I think today, you know, everyday Catholics like myself um, are losing a lot of patience and an enthusiasm and a sense of mission for the Church, and I think part of that is the, the hierarchical um, nature of the Church. And I, and, I, and I also think that the secular world and, um, you know, and other religious people, you know, along with Catholics, are also sort of losing a sense of respect and trust, particularly in the hierarchy. And I don't think it's necessarily in the Church as a, as a body of people or as a set of beliefs or as a mission. But, but particularly in the hierarchy. So, I, you know, to answer your question a little bit more directly, I don't know that there's anything wrong with having a hierarchical structure per se, um, but I definitely think it's in desperate need of reform. I think our current structure is way too infused with clericalism, which is this faulty and, and, and really, I believe, immoral notion that simply because they're ordained, deacons, priests, and, and bishops are somehow elevated over and above, you know, non-ordained lay people in the church. So they have, um, that because of that, they have more authority, uh, certainly in terms of, like, church structure and governance and decision-making, but also, like, just in a cultural sense, um, that, you know, how often do you hear of people you know, say, well, Father said so. Well, Father said it's okay to do this. Father said that. Father said that. Well, I've got, you know, academics who have degrees above and beyond Father uh, saying something else. You know, so it's like, you know, but Father gets gets the weight. So I think really, you know, clericalism is bogging down the hierarchy. And if we could find a way to be a more, uh, what Pope Francis calls a, a synod, uh, you know, a synodal church, a uh, 
a church that emphasizes synodality, which uh, basically means to journey together. Um, so if we could find a way to emphasize that within the hierarchy uh, over clericalism, um, I, I think we'd be better off. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know that having a hierarchy is necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I have uh, I have Episcopal priest friends who who would say, you know, sometimes I wish we had the kind of hierarchical structure that you have in the Catholic Church, and and they have their their various reasons for that. Um, and I said, well, it comes with its own problems, you know, um, but um, but uh, you know, I don't think a hierarchical structure is bad, but I think we really need to to get away from the clericalism that is infused in that hierarchical structure and really look at trying to find a way to, to in, in, inject some synodality. A colleague uh, described an instance in an immigrant community in New York City, predominantly Hispanic community, fervently religious, and visualized in verbiage an old woman just looking out a window he said he had approached her son, and her son simply said, she's just heard the news, and she doesn't know how to extrapolate it. She doesn't know how to deal with it. So she's looking out the window and hoping truth knocks on the pain. What was your initial reaction to the abuse scandal, Russ? You know, I, um, poor, um, disgust, shame. Um, you know, shame, uh, really being a big one, uh, for me personally, um, you know, it, it, to, to know that, to know that I, um, I'm a part of this and, and, and am this church and that someone in this community of believers that I espouse, uh, and, and that I, that I engage with, um, would be capable of that was really disheartening to me. Um, you know, and I, and I, I guess, you know, I did struggle too with the sense that, well, maybe this is time, maybe this is the sign that I finally need to look elsewhere, that I, you know, uh, that I need to find a fulfilling faith life and another religious tradition. Um, and I sat with that for, for, for a while. And, um, I think eventually through some careful discernment, it dawned on me that, no, that same sense of responsibility that sort of was uh, almost uh, contributing to that sense of shame was the same sense of responsibility that was compelling me to stay, to say, no, this is, we are the church, this is my church just as much as it is your church, and I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight for it, because I know that we have done better, that we can do better. And, and that we should be doing better, that we can become a happier, healthier, holier place. And um, so it was a process. I mean, I went through all sorts of um, emotions. But eventually, you know, I think what was initially a sense of, of shame and sort of downtroddenness has really turned into a sense of empowerment and renewed enthusiasm, uh, particularly for the work the Future Church does, because I think it's so important in this time. Would you advocate a change in the law of celibacy to give more emotional release to members of the clergy? 
you know, I, I, I think uh, uh, it, it's long overdue the time to uh, evaluate the mandated celibacy that we have. Um, it's, you know, as far as the Church goes, it's, it's a relatively recent um, development, and, you know, it's in the 1100s that it's first mandated, um, and and even then, for for a couple hundred years, it's sort of it's sort of practiced differently in, in different times and different places. Um, so it's sort of a new thing, um, and I don't know that it's doing us any favors. I don't think that um, you know. Obviously, in, in light of the, the the clergy sex abuse crisis, it, it does get brought up a little bit more. I don't know that it's the panacea that that a lot of people might suggest it is. Um, but I really, I, I do think we need to consider it because, um, you know, I guess for me, the question is, I don't think celibacy creates the disease, right? So celibacy isn't causing abusers um, to, to, to abuse their power or their, um, or to, to engage in these acts of violence. I, you know, um, I, that's something within them. Those, you know, that's not those aren't expressions of sexuality. Those are expressions of, of some sort of dysfunction. Um, and I think, you know, we need to consider, is celibacy one of the things that might attract someone who is running away from something that they've recognized, but maybe not necessarily been able to name or acknowledge um, in their own, you know, psyche? Um, so I, I think you know that's one reason. I think we we would do ourselves some favors and sort of not um, self-select people who might be predisposed to having um, difficult relationships, not understanding or being comfortable living in community uh, with other people, respecting boundaries, things of that sort of nature. So I think you know, in terms of the sexual abuse crisis, there is something. Um, to be said for definitely looking at um, celibacy. But I think also, you know, there's a lot of other good reasons, uh, you know, to look at um, to look at celibacy that may not at first seem to be necessarily related to the abuse crisis, but I think they are. You know, one of the things I talked about at the top of the show uh, in Future Church was the, the, the pre-shortage. Um, and, you know, a, a 2009 study... Um, shows that by 2019, which is, you know, next year, um, half of all currently active priests, so that was at 2009, half of all the priests that were currently active at that point in the United States were going to be of the retirement age. Um, and so, um, you know, approximately 9,000 actively, you know, active priests at that time, 2009, are, are by 2019 going to be retired. And there's no, you know, new ordinations are not replacing that. So I think by offering um, to, to, to look at the, the practice of celibacy, which is not a doctrine, um, to say, you know what, we're no longer going to mandate celibacy, I think that increases our pool of candidates. And I think when we increase our pool of candidates, uh, we as a community, um, the church, and certainly those who run seminaries, um, and those who run formation programs in, in dioceses are able to look a little bit more closely at the uh, at the the men who are uh, in formation and who are candidates for priesthood to really ask tough questions. 
is this person suited to the priesthood? Is this person... Russ, if I may, please hold that thought. It's a marvelous train of discussion. We're about to have our second break. This is Seldom Said. My name is Roberts. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. Our special guest, Mr. Russ Petrus, Associate Director of Future Church. Russ, if you would continue with that discussion of celibacy and your attitudes toward it. Sure, yeah. I was uh, I was just getting at the, the point to, to say, you know, I think by um, no longer mandating celibacy, certainly if some if some priests actually have that charism, that gift, um, you know, uh, by all means exercise it, but by no longer mandating it, because it is a church practice and not and not a uh, church doctrine, as it were, um, we could certainly increase our pool of candidates to the priesthood. We have a shortage right now. And so by increasing that, that pool of candidates, we'd be able to better really discern uh, whether or not each individual candidate is suited to the priesthood, whether whether they're qualified um, to, to take up uh, that position and that role in our community. Uh, and certainly a, a piece and a component of that is how well are they able to live in community with people? How well are they able to interact with uh, women, with um with uh, vulnerable populations, including children, so I think that's that's one one uh, really positive reason to make celibacy optional. And I think you know, getting back to this notion of clericalism, I think it's another way, um, you know, by introducing uh, celibate priests who are accountable to a fam- or um, non-celibate priests who married priests who would be accountable to a family um, and understand um, the give and take. Um, and that there's something bigger and greater than, you know, sort of the old boys club of the church, um, uh, I, I think it would go a long way in decreasing the clericalism that, you know, Pope Francis has has um, diagnosed, and I would agree, as being at the, at the heart, uh, the root of the, the clergy sex abuse crisis and its cover-up. Traditionally, so, yeah. throughout hierarchical history, the pulpit has declared itself indivisible and free of any outside interference. What part should government play in the regulation of activities, abhorrent or not, aberrant or not, really, within a religious organization? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I think that that's something that has to be negotiated at each you know, in each uh, nation and country based on, on their own uh, constitution and their own attitudes towards religion and things like that. Um, but certainly, um, I think in terms of regulating the church, you know, when it comes to stuff like the clergy sex abuse crisis, definitely um, the church sh- and church officials should be accountable to civil authorities. Um, and, you know, priests should be held accountable uh, to the criminal law, just as they're held accountable in canon law. Same thing with bishops. Um, I think when it comes to things like uh, <clears throat> priests, uh, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I can speak uh, best of the Catholic Church. I, you know, when it comes to, to priests um, uh, up on the, on the pulpit um, advocating for certain candidates or to vote on a certain position, 
uh, on, say, for instance, a ballot issue. Uh, I really think we've got, that gets a little bit dicey. I think the church always has a role in politics to um, talk about the issues, to lift up ideals and values. Uh, but I think when we get into the level of advocating for people to vote a certain way or to vote for a certain candidate, it gets a little bit dicey. And, and I do think, you know, in those sorts of instances, uh, you know, for instance, the tax exempt status of a particular congregation or a particular parish or diocese or whatever, you know, could, could come into question. I do think that there needs to be a, a, a negotiation of that in, you know, like each country um, in terms of how they operate as a, as a government. Given what you have just said, do you feel that individuals in government should hold the personage of a cleric or priest to accountability, or should it be the organization itself? There's talk about preparing adequate compensations for those abused. That would mean the organization pays. What would future churches' position on that be? Sure, yeah, you know... um that's a that is a, a difficult question because uh, if you're talking about the kinds of structures that have been set up uh, in, in other countries and that we've watched, you know, uh, there are funds that dioceses set up um, uh, basically to to uh, allow for folks who have legitimate claims of sexual abuse. Um, but whose claims are outside of the statute of limitations to be able to bring a, a lawsuit. Um, it, 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 I think it's a good thing um, in, in that instance, in the sense that, you know, those victims, you know, if they have no other options before them, um, certainly deserve some kind of compensation and restitution for the physical, psychological, uh, emotional, and, and, and spiritual suffering that they've suffered. And, of course, the economic impact that the consequences of having been abused have on their life going forward, and, uh, and definitely for the related treatments that they seek out, um, whether that's medication or counseling or, or whatever it is. Um, I, I definitely think that they ought to be compensated for that. And so in, in, in cases where that's like the only legal option, it's something. Uh, but I, I think having watched on as... This has happened in different places at different times and in different ways. <laughs> Excuse me. We know that um, the church and their their attorneys tend to view um, view uh, those who have been abused, the victims, survivors of abuse, as sort of legal opponents. And so those those victims often have to answer. Um, questions, very embarrassing and prying questions over and over and over again. Um, you know, they're usually signed in, they're locked into non-disclosure agreements, and they're often barred uh, from being able to take any sort of legal action later. Um, and uh, I, I think, honestly, they, they typically receive a lot less than they would if they were, say, to go um, and, and sue. Um, so, you know, so there's, there's the upside and there's the, the downside of it. You know, I think another uh, another way of approaching this would be for the for the church to, you know, at the very least, not um, fight, um, and I would hope uh, perhaps even support uh, efforts to expand or even eliminate statutes statutes of limitations, 
and uh, to create periods of time where uh, victim survivors could retroactively um, pursue legal action. Um, you know, I think it, that something like that would be a really big uphill battle in some states. In some states, it's probably more doable. Um, but I think, you know, in the long run, um, having going that kind of a course really helps with the transparency issues that so many of us are, are, are appalled by, that the church has been keeping this a secret, because they can if it's through a settlement. But, uh, you know, when it's done in open court, you know, a lot of the facts and information is going to come out. And of course, it also helps, you know, doing that, you know, um, doing it through the courts would allow uh, for victims to get really more of the restitution that they that they deserve that they're owed. Um, so uh, I, I think the bottom line for, for me uh, is that as long as victims have adequate legal representation, and are fully informed about the options that they have before them um, and what the ramifications of those different directions are, whether they, they choose to, to sue uh, or whether they choose to enter into one of these agreements with the church. Um, you know, I, I think empowering them and giving them all the tools that they need to, to make the best decision for themselves uh, is, is probably an important thing, especially for someone who's had power ripped away from them. So... So, yeah, I think, you know, it's probably a both-and, um, that the Church should make these funds available to people if that's the only course of action that that, um, that they can do legally. But I also think there needs to be a civil um, cooperation with civil authorities to try to get these statutes uh, lifted. Future Church does advocate some progressive ideologies and methods. I do remember as a young man uh, having... Dr. King speak to a group and share with us his philosophy that Christ gave him the message and Gandhi gave him the method. There have been some difficulties occurring recently on the border, the Nogales crossing and so forth. What is Future Church's position in regard to an activist, lay and clerical group? What actions are amenable, acceptable, moral, and moderate? Yeah, so um, you know, in terms of future church, a lot of our a lot of our work is uh, is geared specifically at um, church reform. And so, in terms of like um, the, the the politics of it all, uh, we wouldn't necessarily take a position as an organization in terms of what's happening in the secular world. We would we would be more likely to take a position in terms of empowering uh, and lifting up the voices of women and. Uh, lay people um, within church structures, so that the church could make the right um, the right decisions in terms of you know what values they're going to uphold and um, what sorts of actions they'll take in terms of, say, for instance, the immigration issue. Um, so, so that would be sort of uh, uh, the direction that we would go. Um, but certainly, in terms of like activism, I think you know, uh, you know, uh, we're we're all for people engaging in peaceful uh, and nonviolent protests, and um, you know, uh, giving witness uh, to the injustice, raising attention to the injustices uh, that, that that they see in the world, and um, really uh, giving voice to what 
what they think is is the right direction moving forward, and then engaging in dialogue with others about about how to achieve some progress on any given topic. In this age of both spiritual and partisan politics, religion is brought up so constantly. Where do you feel we stand now as Catholics, as Christians, as religious people? Where do those who espouse a given faith picture themselves now, in your opinion? Yeah, I think uh, that, you know, I think you're getting at the heart of a, a really big problem um, here in the United States, uh, and, you know, and certainly I think probably around the world too, but, you know, my experience is here in the United States, and, and I think too often um, people uh, use religion as a weapon. Uh, religion was never meant to be a weapon. Christ's words aren't supposed to be weapons, and so I think trying to find a way in which we speak to our values and to our principles, you know, as they flow from our lives of faith in a way that don't weaponize them, um, you know, uh, and scapegoat people based on our beliefs, I think, is is it's going to be a Herculean effort, uh, but we all need to undertake it. You know, I, I, you, I, I can't speak for you, but, you know, I myself, I, you know, Every once in a while, you know that 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 thought. Well, I could use this as a as a jab against someone. Um, uh, you know, comes into your mind, and you really have to resist that temptation because religion's not ever meant to be a weapon. It's meant to be a tool um, and and a resource. And it actually comes from the word um, uh, two words: the re and ligio. The ligament comes from the same. The word ligament comes from the same uh, Latin root. It's meant to connect. Um, and we're doing too much dividing. There's way too much polarization and ideologically driven commentary. You know, and then we're seeing that play out in the, in the clergy sex abuse uh, crisis here, where you know battle lines are being drawn between bishops. Um, but we really need to find a way to understand that we're in this together. We have to travel through it together uh, with the best in- interest of, especially the the the, the most vulnerable, and um, trying to find ways to become a ha- happier. Uh, healthier, and I would say, you know, for for me, a holier, uh, both society and church. We're a little bit less than uh, four minutes into the end of our program, Russ. Certainly appreciate your being part of this, and you're being very open. I wonder if we can just end with a short statement as to what you consider to be your own personal plans. If I look into your window tomorrow, what do I find you doing? Sure. Um, Right now, I'm really focusing my uh, professional and personal efforts on combating um, the clerical situation, the clerical uh, structures and, and culture that have allowed this abuse crisis to fester uh, in our church. And so I'm going to be working on a number of reforms um, in the church to specifically deal with the abuse crisis itself, and that includes coming up with ways to... to, to um, expand the, the role of lay people in holding uh, priests and bishops accountable, ways to work within and modify uh, current can law, which governs the, the Church, so that, um, so that bishops in particular, there's a clearer way to hold bishops who cover up or abuse, can be held accountable, um, and for setting up processes in dioceses so that bishops can 
hear from and respond to the questions of Catholics uh, in in their local area and have to answer for what, what they're doing, what they're going to do going forward, what they have done, things like that. And then certainly for long-term uh, long-term work that I'm going to be doing is on rooting out uh, clericalism by reforming our seminaries, by integrating lay people, and especially women, into our church's governance and decision-making structures, and, um, you know, finding existing opportunities, existing ways to do that, and, and you know, um, working on even um, sort of lobbying, I guess, for for new bodies and new ways of bringing laity and and women into the conversation, so that they have not just a consultative role, but really a deliberative and decision making role. So that's going to be my work going forward, and um, uh, I hope folks would be willing to to join me in that. I think it's a it's a difficult and sometimes heartbreaking but definitely rewarding and very um, uh, important work that we do. A very quick uh, 20-second notice as to how an individual listening to this program can get involved with Future Church. Sure. Uh, The easiest way to start would be to go to uh, www.futurechurch.org. That's our website. Um, There's all sorts of information about our work and what we do. Uh, educational resources that you can um, download uh, and look at. And uh, we are on Facebook and Twitter. Our population uh, seems to be heavily uh, in the, the Facebook camp. Uh, so uh, we're, we're a little bit more active on Facebook. If you, but if you go to, to Future Church and, or to Facebook and just search for Future Church, we'll come, come right up. So Certainly appreciate you being part of this discussion, Russ. We're going to be dealing with the attitudes of various religious groups down through the months of this year. There are so many things happening that are worthwhile and desiring of some sort of accommodation and understanding. Again, uh, I appreciate uh, Russ Petrus, the executive director of Future Church, being part of this program. And hopefully, Russ, we can see you again. Take care. Be well. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. Seldom Said.